where do you start to build connection with people because their present is so extreme and their future so uncertain yeah. and their past has had this consequence so in the end I just ended up like with one guy they loved Harry Potter so I taught them how to play the Harry oh. Potter theme tune on the piano so oh, that's amazing so it's just like yeah, yeah. it's like where do you find common ground like the Harry Potter theme tune Hello and a sunny summer welcome to Art Fictions as I record this with rain dripping on the ceiling. I'm Gillian Knipe, artist, creator and producer of this podcast which aims to give voice to both artists and art commentators of different ages, genders, cultures, identities and backgrounds. Who'd have thought that was possible? So today we give a warm welcome to our host, author and critic Elizabeth Fullerton, along with guest artist Rory Pilgrim, who, mere moments before this recording, was nominated for the prestigious Turner Prize. So huge congratulations, and I suggest getting that Eastbourne exhibition date in your diaries for later this year. For now, let's hear a discussion about Rory's musically inspired community-based work through the prism of The Bell by Iris Murdoch. I need to make a quick content warning here. For anyone who's familiar with this emotionally challenging text, it contains and therefore this discussion contains references to sexual abuse and to suicide. Personally, I'm so very sorry for anyone whose lives have been scarred by anything even close to these experiences. And please know that even though this episode may be difficult to listen to, Rory and Elizabeth handle the subjects with genuine sensitivity. They also talk about unheard voices, sunken voices, historical voices, awoken voices, and shutting down voices. They talk about empathy, songwriting, drawing, poetry, kissing, dancing, stories, and transformation, spiritual striving, moral dilemma, social practice, closet homosexuality, transformative moments, nuns getting naked, and writing off people who are too complicated. Also, the toxic politics of speech, which actually came up in episode 27 when I spoke with artist Luke Burton around Ben Lerner's The Topeka School. They talk about wrestling with faith, music as a first language, the desire and courage to learn and to listen, experiences shaped by nuance and interconnections, and ways in which direct democracy can be built on consensus and intergenerational dialogue. And together they question, how can you be completely yourself within a group? How can we imagine new forms of law through storytelling? And how can art play a civic role in transforming lives and developing networks of care? A quick reminder now that art fictions depends entirely on volunteers. So please contribute for not much more than a cup of London coffee via patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast. And a massive thank you to those who've signed up already. When and if you feel so inspired, contact us by email artfictionspodcast at gmail.com or DM artfictionspodcast or one word on Instagram and tell us about your creative endeavours or just say hi. During the edit, in considering Rory Pilgrim's work a little bit outside the box, I kept thinking about somebody else altogether. In 2004, the artist and institutional critic Andrea Fraser presented a paper which you can listen to on diaart.org and read on her website. It's titled 
Why does Fred Sandbank's work make me cry? And Andrea Fraser weeps throughout her presentation, which concludes, the extreme reticence of Sandbank's work is not something I experience as an act of withholding, but rather as an act of extraordinary generosity. By removing himself to the extent that he does, he makes a place for me. Likewise, if you are lucky enough to witness Rory's work, including descriptions of him making it in this conversation with Elizabeth Fullerton, and you're still completely dry-eyed, you might just want to check for a pulse. So welcome to Art Fictions, Rory. Hello. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. For our discussion today, you've chosen the novel The Bell by Iris Murdoch published in 1958 by Chateau and Windus, I think. So I'm going to give a little brief sort of summary of The Bell to get us started. Most of The Bell takes place in a spiritual lay community, living in the shadow of a convent of Benedictine nuns on a large country estate. The community becomes a sort of petri dish for examining the relationships between the cast of characters who, for different reasons, have sought refuge from the tribulations of modern life. The story is told from the perspective of three characters, the leader of the community, Michael, who is a closet homosexual, Dora, a somewhat hapless artist, unhappily married to a dogmatic academic Paul, and lastly, a naive young man, Toby, who has vague religious or spiritual leanings and is looking for a meaningful experience before he starts university in the autumn. The bell of the title is an intriguing focal point, Legend has it that centuries previously, the abbey's bell flew out of its tower and into the lake below after one of the nuns received a lover and she drowned herself from shame. The abbey has now ordered a new bell and a ceremony is planned to welcome it, but things go awry as Toby has in fact discovered the old bell in the lake and secretly plots with Dora to substitute the new with the old. Murdoch deftly combines high drama and farce with profoundly serious and poignant themes of sexual abuse, suicide, unrequited love and spiritual striving. So when I first contacted you, Rory, to invite you to be on Art Fictions, you said you hadn't read much fiction recently, but that The Bell was a book that had stayed with you for many, many years. What was it that resonated so strongly for you? Yeah, I suppose... I read it when I was maybe 19 years old, so it does come in that moment of life where you're figuring a lot out. There were certain things which did resonate so much with how I grew up, and I also was born into a religious community. My father is an Anglican church minister, so I'd been taken or experienced being in communities or even in lay communities, Mm -hmm. and so... When I found this book as a 19-year-old, I was almost reading it without kind of comprehending it. So it's always stayed with me, and I don't read very much as part of my life now. When I read, I really like to read, and I'll just sit down and read a book from start to finish. Mm. Um, So I find it difficult to just, like, ongoingly read because I get too emotionally affected or invested. So when you invited me that was the book 
which came to mind, but I hadn't read it in about 15 years. So to reread it has been a whole new experience. Uh huh. What was it like rereading it? What for you came to the fore? Just that things are complicated. Yeah. <laughs> that our experiences are shaped by nuance that they are shaped by a huge amount of interconnections where we feel either in control or out of our control and how that goes from a personal to a wider kind of macro level so to use the feminist phrase personal is political but just that sensibility that things are complicated. I've always remembered it as this very funny book. Yeah. And it is very funny and also very camp in a way. And I think that's also really important part of it, that it's very human. So when it does get really difficult, it is sort of brought back to earth by like a nun getting naked, trying to (laughs) save someone because that's what you have to do. Yeah. If someone is in trouble, that you're confronted with your humanness and all throughout the book there are these very funny things but reading it 15 years later I was kind of maybe confronted with those more um, complex things to do with power relations to do with age and experience to do with gender to do with class to do with religion and just also what lived experience does. Yeah it occurred to me that there are also synergies somehow between the humane way that you and Iris Murdoch approach people like she writes with incredible empathy and lack of judgment in a way I mean she doesn't shy away from exposing the flaws of her characters but as a reader you end up accepting and understanding them as human and identifying with their flaws and their complexity like you say do you think that's a fair comparison Yeah, I suppose I can only listen to people and like, how do you create a space in which someone really feels that they can be heard? I mean, there's listening, but there's also hearing and there's being heard or being seen and you can't come with any judgment. Mm. You just can only listen because in the end, you're trying to create a space of understanding. And I do actually believe that understanding is possible. Mm. You can create a threshold in which you can connect with another person, another experience. But understanding is a process and you have to listen. You have to maybe say a little bit in return. What I always found so incredible by Murdoch was her ability to kind of deal with the inner monologue Mm. and that she could so profoundly write of what was going on in someone's head or what they're feeling. I never think I'm a person who thinks very much. I feel a lot and when I'm by myself, I don't really think in words, but how she's able to, I don't know, suddenly with such compassion and not moralise from it, Mm. I think. Yeah, totally, because we've got one of the sort of most complicated central characters is Michael, who on the face of it, you could say potentially if you wanted to be moralistic he's you know has this sort of history of kind of paedophilia or I don't know like it's certainly abusing his position as a teacher with a pupil who is Nick and probably causing him some damage although it's very delicately 
written because you see there is a reciprocated um, you know emotional exchange between them and as I think when we were chatting I said to you you know had Michael been Nick's age I would have thought of it as a very beautiful encounter that they have but when you remember that actually Michael is older and a teacher then you realize oh this is actually really problematic and it maybe is relating to what happens with Nick eventually you know it does I think set him or something sets him on a path to sort of self-destruction and then Michael also is very aware at times of you know his own behavior is problematic and he tries to reconcile it with his spirituality and spiritual sort of aspirations and play down the influence that it may have had on Nick's life and and it's really beautifully done because you want to sort of understand where he's coming from as well so it stops you just having a an outright judgment and it makes you try to relate i think I don't know, that was how I experienced it. How about you? Yeah, well, I think across all three characters, they are placed with a moral dilemma of some kind. Mm. And with Michael, who is the leader of the spiritual community, we, at the face of it, are confronted with this spiritual man, and then slowly it starts to unravel that he has these feelings and that he has a history of this person who's at the lay community, which you're kind of trying to piece together very gradually Mm. what's gone on, and you're only hearing, or we only ever really encounter this relationship through Michael and not Nick. Yeah. But we we get an insight that with all of these, maybe why it is happening, that it's because of also societal pressures, what's going on at the time, this kind of wrestling with faith and kind of Christian dogma. And at the same time, through that kind of suppression, that spills out into this harm essentially Mm. where through Michael being harmed that harm is then replicated through a power dynamic onto another individual we are very exposed to that so we we have to kind of work through it and it it isn't reconciled at all but I think maybe that's why the nuance is something which is a word which is on my mind yeah I think there's a really interesting thing going on in this spiritual lay community, which is that there actually isn't a lot of empathy and listening to each other that is happening, it seems. Like, Michael doesn't get the listening that is needed for his own situation. Like you say, there's societal pressures and all the horrible homophobia that's socially prescribed at the time and Nick at no point gets anyone listening to him he has to force Toby through physical strength just to hear him out and here's this really damaged individual that's been sort of sequestered off in a lodge somewhere and Michael's aware that he needs to at some point confront him or deal with their past but he never actually manages to make that happen in time but so I think you had a passage didn't you you wanted to read about like how the community works or doesn't work 
the main character in a way is Dora, or that's mm. who we're introduced to first, and she's run away from her husband, who's awful, <laughs> and then she, it's got one of the best opening lines of a book, I think, where it's Dora Greenfield left her husband because she was afraid of him. She decided six months later to return to him for the same reason. <laughs> but um, the husband is working at this um, lay community, working on some scrolls. But she's just arrived and she's trying to sort of settle in and it starts, Dora arranged the wild flowers into a careful bouquet and put them in a tooth mug which she had filched from the bathroom. They looked charming. She wondered what else she could do to make the room look nice. There was a knock on the door and Mrs Mark came in. Dora jumped, having forgotten all about her. So sorry to have kept you waiting, said Mrs Mark. Ready for our little tour? Oh yes, thank you, said Dora, seizing her jacket which she threw loosely round her shoulders. I hope you don't mind me saying so, said Mrs Mark, but we never have flowers in the house. She looked censoriously at Dora's nosegay. We keep everything here as plain as possible. It's a little austerity we practice. Oh dear, said Dora, blushing. I'll throw them out. I didn't know. Don't do that, said Mrs Mark magnanimously. Keep those ones. I thought I should tell you, though, for next time. I feel sure you'd rather be treated like one of us, wouldn't you? And keep the rules of the house. It's not like a hotel, and we do expect our guests to fit in. And I think that's what they like best, too. Oh, of course, said Dora, still extremely confused. I'm so sorry. You see, we don't normally allow any sort of personal decoration in the rooms, said Mrs Mark. We try to imitate the monastic life in certain ways as closely as we can. We believe it's a sound discipline to give up the particular sort of self-expression. It's only a small sacrifice after all, isn't it? Yeah, that's amazing. What does that say for you about the community and relating to your own work with communities as well? My dad is a very liberal minister who's incredible, but still this sense of being part of a community, I've always found very stressful. <laughs> I'm a Pisces, so I'm very, I usually just can't really cope very well with groups, but just one-on-one. But this feeling of, I'm actually very scared of groups. I'm very scared of community. That's so funny. And so people always think, oh yeah, Rory works for community. <laughs> they love community. And actually, I, I'm very nervous about groups, even though I work with groups a lot. But at the end, I work always from a group. I suppose from my own experience, the big question is how can you be yourself and be completely yourself within a group or Mm. with others yeah and how do you make space that within a group and that each person is listened to that they are cared for and they can operate in the way that makes most sense to them Mm. and I think when I work with groups now myself I'm always the, the voice of the individual is more important to me than the voice of the group. But it's how do you do that as a collective experience? Mm. But I, I mean, I'm also, I drifted to the Quakers when I was 14 years old. So in a way, Quakerism is very important to me. So I've absorbed a lot of Quaker attributes. 
but um, within that passage, just the sign of like one sense of self-expression and that it's sort of shut down as a small sacrifice yeah. is just immediate to me of like what potential group can do. And it comes back later in the book that like Dora tries to ask them a question and then the same woman says, oh, we never talk about our personal experiences yes. from uh, our histories. So that is immediately shut down or denied. Yeah. And you see the ripple effects of that within the community, within Michael, within the other characters, this denial of being able to speak about things that they've experienced has massive repercussions. Yeah, it definitely does. The the sort of shutting down of the voice, right? Yeah. The individual voice. It doesn't make sense at all, but... I suppose they're all aspiring, they're holding up as the sort of idyll or the paragon, the abbey as the model, aren't they, of how they want to be. But yet, equally, um, the abbess isn't there for Michael when he needs her either. And her sort of wisdom comes too late, in a way. Yeah, well, the, the, the abbess and the abbey... So, in the book, we have this lay community living in a house, and then somewhere on the other side of the lake is a collection of nuns, essentially, living behind a closed door, who've made the sacrifice to join, but then can't leave it, really. Yeah. But so... It's this funny thing where the lay community aspire and hold the nuns in such esteem. Yeah. But in the end, when we are confronted with the nuns, we discover that the door isn't even locked yeah. at one point. But the yeah, the abyss is a bit this bridge between the two worlds. But then through her own humanness, isn't able to listen to Michael. And so her, this kind of almost Pope-like figure or this this saint, for whatever reason, it doesn't happen. So this notion of the ideal is never there, really, yeah. throughout the book. Even though there is this idea of a spiritual ideal, it is brought back to earth. That's true. I was going to talk about the bell. I had a little quick passage to read about the bell because in a way the bell has a strange function I think because it's it's sort of there as this elusive character in the background isn't it but it is a character of the book and it's obviously it's the title of the book but it does have a sort of anthropomorphic aspect to it so Dora comes up with this slightly harebrained plan with Toby when Toby confides in her that he's found the bell they drag it out of the lake and clean it and meet in the middle of the night to substitute it for the new one so there's this I think kind of transformative moment for Dora who is portrayed as a slightly a little bit shallow not totally but um slightly yeah as I said hapless character but she in this moment here she encounters the bell it's described as a living presence and it has a sort of warmth to it even though it's made in I guess metal or bronze or something and has been dragged out of the lake so here it says she turned to the bell for help she pressed her palm gently against it as if supplicating the bell moved very slightly she steadied it and stood with both her hands upon it attending to it she was struck again by the marvel of its resurrection and she felt reverence for it almost love when she thought how she had drawn it out of the lake and lifted it back into its own airy element she was amazed and felt suddenly unworthy how could the great bell have suffered her to drag it here so unceremoniously 
and make it begin its new life in an outhouse. She should not have tampered with it. She ought by rights to be afraid of it. She was afraid of it. She took her hands off it abruptly. And then it goes on and she eventually decides to ring it to wake up the whole community in the night to sort of make her confession almost, doesn't she? But um, how do you see the bell? It is that inner voice in a way because the bell, I mean, you have the thing inside the bell. Yes. Which it only will sound if someone steps within and resonates. So the bell is a voice and it is this sunken voice which is fallen into the lake and it cannot sound underwater and so Dora almost has this vision she doesn't really understand what the hell she's doing but this need to ring this bell and drag it out so this bell is like this inner voice of course it's like a historic voice because Mm. it's this medieval thing so it's resonating something from the past but it yeah it's this thing which needs to resonate again and she sort of has this ecstatic experience yeah. so um she's trying to understand or doesn't understand the need to do it and I think there's something very powerful in that like why do we do what we do mm. and we're often confronted with that in our lives yeah so uh I think that's what the bell means it's a, to me it's a voice yeah, yeah, I think so. And it, it's a catalyst, isn't it, yeah. also? It, it's a catalyst of change, I think. She changes or seems to gain gravitas or depth right in front of us or transformation or something. You know, she suddenly becomes, for me, a more sympathetic character. Or she already was. I don't know, she, she becomes less self-centred somehow and less about her needs, her sensual needs sort of thing. And more about thinking more broadly about life and existence and maybe the wider community and and then of course the bell is this crazy yeah as you say high drama high farce moment where the new bell falls into the lake replacing the old bell but the whole book has been leading up to the big ceremony with the bell bringing the bell into the abbey which is going to be dressed up And which is a sort of substitute for Catherine also, who, when it falls into the lake, she sees it as a sign that her entry into the abbey isn't going to happen or something. And that it's ironic and sad that Nick, it sounds like Nick actually sabotaged that and in a way triggered his own sister's breakdown, perhaps, without meaning to. I don't know. There's a a chain of circumstances. Yeah, well, it's like a ripple effect. It's an echo. And I think, yeah, I mean, a bell is also very much based on what an echo is Mm. as well. Like, um, it's such a powerful sound because of the echoing reverberation within it. And, yeah, the echoes in which unfold between the different characters and what it does to them and how they relate or how interconnected they are and with Nick and Catherine they're twins yeah so they have this sense of shared knowing but they almost try and sort of self-sacrifice for the other yes so there's quite a lot of complex (laughs) things going on in it it's also a very the moment of Catherine trying to kind of hurl herself into the lake through this breakdown but then she's rescued by this nun and there is this moment where people are shocked that one of these nuns have suddenly come out of the abbey and 
taken off their habit and are just a topless now yeah topless going <laughs> in but it is we can put things as sacred or as on a pedestal but in the end what is most sacred also manifests in the most rudimentary act and I, I often think about the word mundane that sometimes we kind of shoo it away it says oh it's just so mundane but mundane means of the earth And there's nothing more sacred than what just comes from the day to day from the earth. Mm. And I think a topless nun (laughs) doing what she has to do in the moment. In the end, it's a mundane thing. Yeah, saving two people. Yeah, and I think if I think about in my wider work, it's a very rudimental things that people are doing. But they are the most incredible things that people do on a day to day to help others get through uh, and be support structures. So... Yeah, I was wondering if you have a little clip of music talking at the oh, bell yeah. that you might want to play. Yeah, maybe I'll play it first and yes. then I'll just say why. Yeah. If you can fall, can fall asleep to all I know, then call out to all I know. a piece of music called Tomorrow's Gentle Rain and it's the opening song of a film called Rafts and I maybe picked that part because the lyrics are if you can't fall can't fall asleep to all I know then call out to all I know and roar for it's now for it's now to figure out what we need figure out what we need to stay around so we can dream and dream aloud so a bit like the bell of this unwoken voice. I'm always kind of thinking about what is it that we say and the need to say something. And yeah, that's that's why I picked that piece. I, I think the part about the bell um, and it makes this boom and it wakes people up. I think Michael wakes up and he doesn't know why, but he's just heard this really primeval elemental sound that sort of pierced his consciousness you know she also like balances it with humor because it actually sounded because toby and dora are kissing and they fall into the bell and so that's how it strikes yeah Yeah, and so that's how they've awakened this voice from the deep but it's a very very profound thing before we go on to your practice though i want us to just talk quickly about the voice that doesn't get heard that is so tragic who is nick because i think that's such a heartbreaking neglected individual who is there really strongly in the background but he never gets to really speak and you know it's it's just a real tragedy and you had mentioned that for you there was a connection with some of the work is that right you're doing with prisons was that I mean it's a very long and complicated process but I am working with the prison system at the moment 
and I've had the experience of working with homeless services and quite a lot of people within them have experienced incarceration so it's been a bit like trying to work a bit backwards to try and understand and I also partly am based on a island which has three prisons on it so it's a very visible part of the landscape and ecosystem of the community where I partly live and for me the prison is this place in which as a society we just try and put some of the most hardest problems that we have to deal with and just shut them away Mm. and deny people of their humanity and I think yeah with Nick Nick has a very particular experience but just what happens when we don't give space to confront a difficult thing across many different experiences but yeah the tragedy of Nick is that as a society there was too much taboo to even confront the very basic situation of a homosexual relationship and then from that the ripple effect of a power dynamic and in the end we're left with only Michael's thought process but we encounter an individual through Nick who has experienced a lot of harm and we don't know if they've ever been able to speak about it and there is a desire to speak out before it's too late then a tragedy unfolds. Yeah it just feels like like you're saying he's kind of locked away when Catherine begs for her twin brother to be incorporated into the community They put him in the lodge, which you have to cross a body of water to get to. So he's not in the community and they haven't embraced him within the body of the community. He's left as an outcast and, you know, no effort is made to try and hear his story. And it's just so sad because it gets more and more sort of prickly, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But he is taking everything on board. He's watching like an eagle, everything that's happening. And then he forces... Toby to make a sort of second confession that mirrors his own confession of what's been going on with Michael and then there's a weird sort of transition of his feelings for Michael to his sister which is totally unexpected like why Catherine throws herself into the lake turns out to be this unrequited love she feels for Michael I mean which we none of us ever expected that Yeah. (laughs) yeah like you say there's a sort of weird exchange or transition of their emotions and feelings between each other as twins there's a sort of strange fluidity that happens but is misunderstood and never really examined by the people who should be helping them you know yeah if I relate it again to the prison system like I read the government blueprint Dominic Raab or something but like just the language which is used I think that one moment they say that something is like a person is beyond repair and they use this very moralistic language like to keep people on the straight and narrow if I think about the prison system but an action happens in someone's life and then they are just written off and I think that sort of is replicated with Nick or like something has happened it's too complicated so they are written off yeah maybe we can talk about what you're working on the project in more depth I'm going to take this as an opportunity to move into the section on your practice
Rory, you are a multidisciplinary artist whose social practice spans video, performance, songwriting, composing, drawing, among many, many other things. As we've been discussing, your practice brings together often disparate groups of people in creative endeavour through song and poetry and dance and stories. You created a film, The Resounding Bell, in 2018, I think it was, that was a sort of call and response between an intergenerational council of women in Peckham and Camberwell and a group of teenage girls, which was really about listening. And then in 2019, you made the film The Undercurrent, working with youth climate activists at the Interfaith Sanctuary in Boise, Idaho, which won the Prix de Rome. And you've been nominated for this year's Turner Prize, yay, for your film, well, for your entire project, but the film Rafts, which you mentioned, which was commissioned by the Serpentine as part of the extraordinary 2022 exhibition Radio Ballads, which was itself the fruit of a three-year collaboration with communities across Barking and Dagenham. Thinking about ways that art can play a civic role in transforming lives and developing networks of care. And there's so much more to say about this brilliant project, but I want to just say I was genuinely blown away by Rory's film Rafts, which explored with honesty, humility, vulnerability and courage what the symbol of the raft meant at a time of climate crisis, pandemic, austerity. So I guess I'd like to go back to the beginning and ask how you got started on this path of forming communities and decentering your own voice in a way. Yeah, I think because when I went to study art, the first question which I was confronted was, was who am I making for? Because mm. like, I can make something, but who who actually is it for? And maybe because, well, both my parents like my dad works from a vocation um, and my mum has dedicated her life to helping children with different learning backgrounds. But this thing of like, okay, you go and study and I mean, so who are you actually making for? Who needs it? Who wants it? And so that was always the, the starting question. But then that also required quite a lot of self-reflection. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happened very gradually, but um, the first work at art school was kind of me learning language. I learned Estonian for two years. So I was always interested in how like, language is a starting point and also a language which isn't your own. And then the understanding of the process of learning a language which isn't your own mm. so it started from that and then my kind of Quaker mentor Helen she gave me this book Mapping the Terrain by um, Lucy Lippard and and then another book called The Reenchantment of Art but it was basically socially engaged art practice from the feminist movement and mm. coming out of civil rights in the 70s and it just like it flipped a switch where I kind of was like, oh, that's kind of where I connect the dots a bit with my own mm. feelings. So I this question of social practice or working with others. And I mean, there are other experiences which come into that as well. But this desire to learn and listen from other people was always there. But some people work collectively and, you know, collaboratively or in collectives or communities, but they don't 
decenter themselves as much. I feel like your work, I mean, of course, you're orchestrating and editing and producing the thing, and it is your work, but you are not the one up there on the pedestal on the whole. There are people singing and producing poetry and animation and dance. You're making music, but you're not sort of making yourself the auteur, the artiste, you know. It feels a very humble position that you're taking, in a way. Maybe I see it as more like creating a ground. And I have to have a very solid ground myself before I can have other people on it or Mm. in it or that they can stand. So I also have to recognise where things are really coming from my side. And I work a lot of sketchbooks. I make hundreds of drawings. I kind of always need to arrive at an anchor. So like with rafts, it literally was the raft as creating a a visual anchor for myself and that for others that they could start a process of relation. Mm. Yeah, I suppose I would do it as a facilitator. It also feels very much like that in the facilitation work. Mm. It's creating a space in which people can be themselves and maybe I draw a little bit from my Quaker experiences from that. But musically, I mean, it's very important for me to identify where something is very personal to me. Mm. And I always work from a position that I will only ask a question if I'm prepared to also answer that question myself and try and share as much as I can. And the music in the end is often very personal lyrically so it goes through a bit this process of listening to people but it's also very much a lot of what's going on in my own life is in that music right yeah yeah and I'm wondering what music and the voice can do like physically emotionally politically I always think music is my first language. Mm. So as a kid, I didn't really like speaking very much. So I was obsessed with how to make an instrument sound. Uh So I feel music, it also is a bit like a ground, which it just envelops you. And spiritually, it's so transformative. Mm. And the fact that words can join with it. And they're also, I suppose, with music to create a harmony or to really allow something to resonate it does become a very collective experience also just listening to the music of another person I mean I think music is also like you find a home in music if music runs parallel to our lives and we can relate so much to maybe a song or something which happens at a particular moment and that song has given us a home or a sanctuary Mm. or a space in which we dwell in and it provides us solace or it provides us a a little place where we can kind of um, find hope or it gives us a tool or it becomes a resource so music is very much this to me. Yeah, because you play a bunch of instruments. What what do you play? Uh, yeah, I, play <laughs> I play the piano, yes. play the clarinet. The harp. Yeah, the harp came later, but I harp is a bit like my, uh, that's like my favourite instrument. It's so beautiful, oh my God. I play recorders, I play flute, play accordion. I'm just not very good at brass and, and like string. I always wanted to play the cello. Oh, right. But okay. I... Yeah, but I'm I'm at the moment a bit fixated by recorders. Okay. So, yeah. But going back to what you're saying about how um, it's sort of an anchor, etc. Have you got a little clip to play from Rafts? 
when you uh... yeah i suppose so this song is also from rafts and it it features the singer robin haddon who is a long-term collaborator since 2015 and also i feel very grateful to have robin in my life as a friend and this song is called beach there and comes about halfway through rafts and mm-hmm. so i'll play a bit of that If there was a beach there Reveals a solace from a clue Wish there was a reef there To gush beyond the grief of what we lose Yeah, so that's Robin. I don't want it to end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Robin has... I mean, I first encountered Robin in Sheffield. She was part of this uh, performance by, I think, artist Mel Brimfield. Uh, They were interpreting Barbara Hepworth's sculptures through a voice, and Robin was a bronze sculpture, and she was literally just singing the word bronze. And it was was like a bell, this sort of deep, deep voice. But so, you know, everyone was kind of like, what are we in the presence of? Yeah. And it is located in this amazing human that is Robin. But um, uh, that song, when I was working on rafts during the first lockdown, I, I actually made most of the songs. And I, comparatively to other films where maybe I've been able to start songs with Robin. A lot of the songs in Rafts, the lyrics were completely coming from me. And then I brought them to Robin and we worked through them. But but yeah, that song's called Beach There. And the lyrics are, if there was a beach there, reveal the solace from a clue. I wish there was a wreath there to catch beyond the grief of what we lose. Felt like I was kind of prophesizing a grief that I knew was going to take place in my life. And then maybe also coupled with what we were experiencing with the pandemic. Yeah. That in the midst of it, we didn't quite also realise we were going to go through this mass grieving experience. And still that space hasn't been given space to. But I think as an experience, like the raft, when we think about support structures or when we need them most, they do happen at moments of grief. Yeah. Um, And moment and grief can manifest in many different ways the loss of a job a loss of a relationship a loss of a person mm-hmm. a loss of an environment but I mean with songwriting the magic is it just comes from nowhere I don't I don't sit and write it just comes as you're singing but yeah I wish there was a reef to catch beyond the grief of what we lose so I think the film is trying to deal with some of those emotions yeah I just I have so many questions I want to keep you talking for, forever about it but when you were first approached with this did you pick the communities you wanted to work with how did it all happen how did rafts come into being well I I, w- I was invited by the Serpentine through a Mark Leff and Elizabeth Graham to be one of the artists so so for people who are not familiar radio ballads it was four artists myself uh, Helen Kamek, Sonia Boyce and Alona Sagar and 
it was to create a new form of radio ballads since these first ones made at the end of the 50s, which chronicalised working voices from Barking and Dagenham. Mm. And sort of think about like what the place of work is now, 50 years after the equal payout, but also very much through social services Mm. and social care services, which have been sort of decimated after the last 10 years. And I, in all honesty, I just finished The Undercurrent, which in America, and I was completely exhausted. And I just sort of fell in to working with Green Shoes Arts, which is an incredible charity, which provides creative workshops for people with different mental health experiences. And maybe in other films or processes where I've like intentionally maybe sought out a particular kind of individual for a certain experience, whereas Lizzie and Amal had already approached Green Shoes Art. And then okay. I, I went to one meeting and I thought, actually, I really like this group. And then I volunteered with them for three months before I did any facilitation work myself. So just wow. got to know people mm. who use their services, laugh, share jokes, um, make cups of tea, help a bit with the music class. And then during that three months, I was trying to find an anchor mm. to sort of mm. approach my radio ballad. And the anchor I arrived at was the raft and then I spent we spent like six weeks doing in-person workshops kind of thinking about what a symbol of a raft means in our lives and then the pandemic suddenly hit Mm. and then we didn't see each other I think for nearly a year and a half in person and we did workshops online every two weeks and then in the in-between weeks we would phone people and just individually chat so again this like individual group thing was really important because also on zoom you know you can't have that like coffee break where you just go and chat to people individually so that was a bit of a process and then a year and a half later we were able to film bring together material and then during that I had written this seven song oratorio it was coming from experiences going on for me but like because the group was also a resource of support and just through listening a lot of that dialogue comes back into the lyrics Mm. at certain points like this refrain don't bring fires on board that came from a workshop with a woman in America because actually we joined with the interfaith homeless shelter which I'd worked with in Boise we had like six months of exchange between the two groups providing back and forth letter writing uh-huh. and so yeah but I know there's like particular things of the music where I'm like they're very much coming from things which have come up through our workshop and dialogue yeah so you brought that connection from Boise to the Green Shoe yeah project. yeah well for me and my work in general I really try and sustain relationships and I think with social art practice, there's not enough spoken about also the afterlife of those relationships. And I have ongoing relationships like with the poet Carol R. Calland. She was part of a a work I did for Sight Gallery, but we've just kept on working together. And I think within the UK, there's always a lot of this come and work with the community and it's very specific. But I try and slightly play with that, that it's fine to bring back past collaborators, past communities and kind of disrupt this localism, which I also feel is very problematic to mm. the UK. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. More in the UK than anywhere yeah. else? Oh, really? Well, we're so fixated on like our island. Also how that ripples into social practice. I mean, it's done with a good intention, but 
I think there's something very interesting about how do we broaden it for beyond a particular locality? Yeah. So I mean, it doesn't become inward. Totally. I mean, that was one of my questions was um, that there's a risk with some forms of social practice and participatory art and everything that, you know, the artist comes in, they, they work with the community, it's all wonderful, and they leave and then that's it. There's a rupture and perhaps there's a risk of the community feeling abandoned or like where do we go we've had this transformative experience and now what do we do with that sort of thing so I wanted to ask yeah how you avoid that yeah well I think it's never easy also like there's many things which I've not maybe been able to or had the support structure where I've been able to continue that relationship in the best possible way or Mm. through circumstance like like with a homeless shelter in um, Idaho we kind of lost contact because they've been evicted from their space so you're always dealing with these questions so there's a bit like the bell you know in the end it's very nuanced it's complicated but I suppose my way personally is if a relationship feels good or I feel like there's more in it I try and sustain it also if it feels right for the person involved it has to come from them as well so I think through all of my work, Rafts was commissioned for Barking and Dagenham, but it begins and ends in Idaho in a very kind of unexplained way. Yeah. But that's really important to me. Mm. And other relationships like with Carol R. Calland, the poet I work with, every time I make a new work, I'm very lucky to be able to commission her to write a poem about how she relates to this word. Or we're always back and forth about like, what words are coming up in our week or our life and just to have those ongoing dialogues is so precious yeah totally and how did you find that community in Boise Idaho because the film The Undercurrent is sort of grounded in that that it's the center of the whole thing and it's I don't know I get really drawn into these kind of communities I mean another example but it's obviously so completely different from yours but Drew Ewan was um that Ragnar Kjartansson's The Visitors did you ever see that work which is again brilliant but he and his collaborators who are singers and musicians they all went and filmed a film in a huge house that had belonged yeah, to the upstate, Astors. Or so. yeah, York, yeah, 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 yeah. And it was very uplifting and it's kind of nostalgic and his work is sort of more, I guess, related to that kind of nostalgia in a way. And it was called The Visitors after the ABBA album when they were on the point of breaking up and I think he was going through a breakup. So there's this sort of transient on the cusp breaking up kind of feel to it clinging on to something good while things are breaking you know so there's there's that as well going on but I don't know as a viewer you kind of just were like I want to be there I want to be part of it and with your one as well there was something so tender you just give this insight into this community that felt yeah very compassionate I'm interested in how you got working with them, how you discovered well, that yeah, group. Well, yeah, in the undercurrent, it's kind of two mm. groups which run parallel. So mm. I did an open call to youth climate activists and that just, it was like, I think in the end about 18 kids responded via Instagram, mm. but then it became like a core 10 or 11. So it was just individuals or teenagers kind of ranged from about 14 to 22 maybe, or 25 was the oldest. Mm. But 
it was really important to me that they had two of them had come from a farming community outside of Boise, which is already remote, but mm. they were even more remote. So it was a group of young people who didn't necessarily know one another. And they came together for this experience of the film just one summer. And they kind of, sometimes a young person appears and then they just disappear again. But that was also because they had work. Some of them were sadly not with their families anymore and having to support themselves from 15, 16 years old. So, Mm. and then the the homeless shelter, which is a bit more of a smaller aspect of the work. But um, I started volunteering there yeah for over a month and then they had a group called project Wellbeing, which was like a day for people who could stay during the day in the shelter but there were different classes i i then ended up doing like two days where we also explored the symbol of the undercurrent again what an mm. undercurrent meant um and then we ended up doing a photography workshop and that is what is seen in the film to do that work properly with that community, I needed more time. I, I was only able to get a glimpse. So that's why I continued working with them for rafts, so that at least I could sustain some of that relationship which had already started to grow right yes because you're right that doesn't feel like as strong an element as the youth activist one in there I mean it's it's present but the other one feels a stronger element to it I guess but I really liked again I know you've talked about this in different forums but the intergenerational aspect there was a really powerful bit where a much older man he was like 84 or something came in and was saying how much hope and faith he had in the younger generation because he said, you know, we can't really do much now. I can't. He said, I wanted to write a piece myself. And then I thought, actually, what have I got to tell everyone? It's you guys are the future. You're the ones who are actually making change, you know. Well, actually, Jerry, so this 82-year-old at the time, he responded to the youth climate. He'd seen the the open call for youth climate activists and said, can I be involved? And Jerry is a... um, quite a prominent figure maybe in Idaho has run for state governor so he's a political voice but is incredibly humble and in the end it felt to involve him was to kind of bring him to the young people and them to have a dialogue and it was a very overwhelming experience listening to him ask questions him listening to them and I think Mm. so some of the young people or a lot of the young people had been let down by adults so badly Mm. in various capacities and maybe some which were more politically active who had gone to their state representatives and had been kind of laughed out the door so just to have an encounter with an older figure even if Jerry himself felt slightly powerless or was maybe even coming to apologize Mm. still it was an exchange in which knowledge in which wisdom and intergenerational dialogue was made yes and from very early on I started working with intergenerational dialogue maybe back from 2008 really um but it was this seventh generational stewardship which comes from various indigenous communities from north and south america and i mean we see seventh generational dialogue as a form of exchange which was kind of maybe quashed through roman and christian centric uh, (laughs) belief system and structures but that a decision for the future 
anything which was made would only be done through what the effect of that in seven generations to come and also seven generations of of the past Mm. so it's also Mm. this important acknowledgement that like certain things might not feel relevant from the deep past but it's always in conjunction with time so when we're confronted with these really difficult questions of short-term long-term thinking how we deal with the present to me there's nothing more radical than intergenerational dialogue I mean we see it in what's happened with Ireland things which maybe would have been inconceivable have been passed through processes of intergenerational consensus I mean I don't know that much Mm, about it mm. so I might be idealizing it or putting it on a pedestal but like different forms of direct democracy built on consensus and intergenerational dialogue oh that's one of the things we, we can just advocate for yeah I mean that's very clear in your work The Resounding Bell which has a apt title for our discussion today but again really powerful how you created these discussions and how there was a lot of listening by the older people listening to the young people what they need what they want how they see things and then the young also saying what would you change what would you do you know I I thought that was also really really moving I mean, there's many moments from the resounding bell, but like there was this moment where one of the ladies from the council, but she's on the phone to the teenagers at the end, and then she says, how can we best support you? Yes. And I think as a young person, even though parents are trying to do that all the time, or Mm. even teachers Mm. and adults are, but to actually explicitly say that to a young person, I think they'd never heard an adult say that to them, like, how can I best support you? And that moment of like a young person, it's like they're slightly taken aback. Yeah. And and then, and I think, yeah, that's what I'm often maybe striving for. And maybe just like, even from my musical background, how do you compose elements of, of listening? Or like, I think one of the worst things in the UK is the politics of speech, that we have a House of Commons and a place which decisions are made and it's done in the most toxic form of speech Mm. and rhetoric. As a musician, how do we recompose that? How do we actually create a space of listening, Mm. of call and response, of speaking and understanding of hearing and listening from a musical level as a composer that's what makes most sense to me like why why do we just not do that yeah I guess um last question on this I guess is how do you think that communal sound making the polyphony open up new critical spaces then I mean I'm I'm very aware of who I am and like I'm able to give the platforms through my own privileges that I have and how I'm read but it's sort of how to be responsible with that maybe and I think when we think about where things are complicated or how if we allow a polyphony in where we are now there's sometimes the fear of getting something wrong or trying something and not doing it because we're already fearful of doing it so I think in terms of polyphony and maybe coming back to the bell even with Dora's kind of crazy act of trying to ring this thing to me that actually just relates a lot about art making and whoever you are don't be afraid of trying to do something to try and make something happen to try and bring something into the world Mm. I mean in Raft's 
I had the great privilege of working with Katie, who was in the group, and she made this animation where she finds an awe of courage. Ever since being able to witness her kind of drawing that and bringing that word of courage is, I think, is something which is really important when we think about this polyphony. The courage to listen. Yeah. The courage to to try something, to not try something. Yeah, to, to work towards polyphony, I draw upon Katie's aura of courage. Yeah, yeah, I love that, I love that. Moving on to the last closing section, wanted to ask which artists, exhibitions, past or present, have particularly inspired you? I know there's probably the oh. most enormous, <laughs> enormous list. Oh. Well, could ma- be musicians, could yeah. be writers. Well, maybe be. from my own intergenerational experience like I'm very thankful to my guiding stars and mentors so like my art teacher from school who I'm still very close to and I don't think I'd be doing without her and we still are very much in contact Jane Jeffcott and then Laureen Vyers the artist who's in her 80s who's very important to me Sans Murray Vasink, who's another artist based in the Netherlands. Oh, I don't know where to begin with Sans, but Sans had an exhibition at Auto Italia last year. People might be familiar with Sans from that. And then just people in my life, the people who I'm able to work with, friendships. I'm incredibly grateful for my friends. Quite a lot of them are artists as well. Evelyn Taocheng Wang, Yannicka Vanderputin, Cassie Augusta Jurgensen, Susie Green. And then, yeah, musically, I mean, I love music. So any music, which, I mean, it's changing all the time. And the gift of being introduced to music by people you love is also very special. Yeah, also Sneshanka Michalova, also a very important person to me. Okay. And what about what's on your bookshelf? You said not a lot of fiction, but is there non-fiction? Or oh, well, it's more just how much I can cope with reading. <laughs> I mean, I love ChatGBT at the moment and asking that to write oh, stories right. for me. I've just, like, I asked it to write a story about a whale recently because I love whales, as in the animals. I love um, them too. <laughs> but, I love uh, them. I, I have Toni Morrison, actually. I managed to read... The Bluest Eyes. Oh God, that's which is amazing, hardcore, but horrific. But yeah. um, and I have the Beloved and the Songs of Solomon's. But yeah. I, again, I, I can only emotionally um, do that once a year. So yeah. Toni Morrison is as a composer, her ability to structure things. I'm so in awe of. Yeah, um, I mean, every sentence is like poetry, but it's so resonant and powerful, isn't it? I just read Songs of Solomon quite uh, recently, which is stunning, absolutely beautiful. But Blue is Sigh is, as you say, just heartbreaking. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, well, it just, I mean, it is heartbreaking. But just from an artistic level, I just think the structure of it, and in a way, if we compare it to the, the bell, mm. like at the end of the bluest eyes, we do get the voice of the person who is, we do not get at all. And so it's just her ability to work with structure. Yeah, I, I'm like... I'm completely in awe. Wow. And then lastly, obviously, we're going to be able to see your work in September for the Turner Prize show, which is going to be really, really exciting. 
Are you making any new works for that or showing existing? I hope we'll be able to see the rafts, won't we? Yeah, I mean, for me, my biggest task is like, because I'm nominated for the the film I made for Serpentine, but we made a live version as well in November. And it's not that the live version was its truest form, but I started the commission imagining it as a BBC prom. So I never lost this sense that it was made for a live thing. And both versions have a certain strength, but I'm trying to think how I can bring that together. And also, like, with all my work, I always interested in what does it mean to share it in the public present moment so it mm. doesn't become historicised. When I make the undercurrent, it's really important for me to always have a dialogue with the young people and create a conversation or an exchange because their experiences have changed since then and they might think very differently or have built from what they already spoke about four years ago. So how do we always evaluate something in the present? Mm, Okay. So you're thinking about that for the show. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see anywhere else that we're going to be able to see your work coming up apart from the Turner Prize show other other projects going on yeah well Rafts is being shown at the Migros Museum in Zurich in the autumn the EVA International Festival in Limerick Ireland Rafts will be in Frac Lorraine in Metz in France and then I'm also working on a new commission for Chisholm Gallery I'm working on my first feature film and that film it will take some time but a first kind of manifestation of that body of work will be at the Chisholm Hill Gallery in May of next year. Is that uh, relating at all to the prison work? Yeah so that's all based on thinking about the criminal justice system Mm -hmm. and specifically kind of located on Portland but I'll be working with previous collaborators as well so at the moment the Chisholm Hill manifestation will be a a space to kind of introduce this film to have dialogue about how we imagine new forms of law restorative justice and maybe it goes back to that thing I said about the parliament as well like what are different forms of speech and Mm, decision making mm. or how can we imagine a new form of law through storytelling and have you found the inmates then receptive to presumably creative enterprise with you yeah well in all honesty it's taken a year to even set up meetings and I went to the prison for the first time on Monday two days ago and I was very lucky to be able to work the education department there I kind of sat in with the music class which the people get sadly only six weeks to do a music class and then after that resources are just gone so they can't continue but it's been a very gradual process even to be able to do that but now that I have that we'll be able to work in a much more intensive way it seems from now but it, it requires a lot of patience and I think people underestimate how slow a process it can be in gaining trust and yeah, building trust. up it has, I mean, sometimes it can be really quick. That can be quite overwhelming in itself and it just happens. But yeah, how trust is made, it's just such a process. You're amazing at it. I mean, clearly you really excel in doing that because you've produced such extraordinary work. But on that note, I think I'm going to have to round off the conversation. So thank you, listeners, and thank you so much, Rory, for being on Art Fictions and sparing so much time for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, my pleasure. 
you listeners and also thanks to today's wonderful guest Rory Pilgrim and our lovely host Elizabeth Fullerton. When Rory mentioned the composition of Toni Morrison's books, he reinforced the main reason for the structure of this podcast, that one art informs another, that creative ideas are fluid and move from music and literature to sculpture to painting to film to performance and the myriad of other presentations invented by artists. So my personal thanks to Rory for that little moment of reassurance. As for other credits, Art Fictions was recorded by Andy Amirshah and an unedited filmed version can be viewed on YouTube at Cubit Community Radio and Mixcloud. For this abridged podcast, the music was written and performed by Griffin Knipe, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our jolly logo. As always, happy listening, reading, seeing and making. Till next time.